We are going to be looking at page 15, week number two of seven, in the series, How to Help Those Who Struggle with Fear and Anxiety. And very often, those who struggle with fear and anxiety are us. And so we can learn, hopefully in our seven weeks together, indeed, how to help others, but also how to be helped with our own fears and anxieties. Page 15 then, week number two on our series on fear and anxiety. And you see the title of this one is The God of Suspense. And if you had an opportunity to go through the lesson, you don't need to do that prior to our coming together. But if you did, you know why it's called that. Because the emphasis of this lesson is that God often delivers us from the situations about which we are fearful about which we are anxious, but that he purposely waits until the 11th hour to do that. We're going to see some examples of him doing that. We're going to see some reasons why he does that as, as well. But before we do, the title is not just that suspense happens, that things often work out even if late at the 11th hour, but notice on page 15, the title is the God of suspense reveals his plans. And before we delve into the material itself, I'd like for us to just think about the fact that many of us pursue our lives, though we believe in God and thus are theists, an atheist is one who does not believe in God, though we believe in God and we are theists, we live our lives as practical atheists. And I found that to be true many, many, many times. One in my own life, I forget. God is an active player in this thing. And the people that I counsel often are in need of counsel because they have forgotten that God is not only an active player, but the most important player. In this situation and in this relationship, God is always the most important actor in the drama That is our lives, always. And this God, who is the most important actor, is an actor who is active, not passive. God is not watching what's going on, hoping it turns out. He's actively involved in the situation and knows it more intimately than you do or I do. But we don't wait. We forget. We forget that. We forget that God's the most important. And so take our relationships, for instance. All of us have difficulty in our relationships from time to time, whether in our homes, whether at work, whether at school, whatever it be. And we often forget that the most important player in this relationship is not that coworker, It's not that student. It's not my spouse. The most important player is God. Now you see this in passages like, and this is not in your... Your notes, but if you care to jot down Psalm 51, Psalm 51, and and verse 4. And if you were to look at Psalm 51, at the top of that psalm, as is the case with many of the psalms, there is something there called a superscription. And it just is a heading that describes what's going on. And at the top of Psalm 51, the superscription, the heading says, this is a psalm of David after he was confronted about his sin 
by Nathan the prophet. Now some of you know that story. David was king. But the king of Israel, David, sinned and sinned in a grievous way. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in order to cover up the sin of adultery, he arranged to have her husband, who was in David's army, a man named Uriah, killed. So that he wouldn't find out and so that it wouldn't be spread. So David committed adultery and murder. And it looked like it was all going to go by the by. Nobody would be the wiser. But God spoke to Nathan and told Nathan to speak to David. And Nathan has this confrontation with David. And then after that confrontation, David writes this psalm. Psalm 51 is after that. Now, as you read Psalm 51, you need to think about the fact that David was the king. And you just think about all the people that David had sinned against. He had sinned against... Bathsheba by violating her. He had sinned against Uriah by having him killed. The truth is, he's the king. He had sinned against the whole nation. This man had all sorts of people that he had committed sin against. And yet, in the aftermath of having been confronted about these sins and all of the devastating consequences that go with it, he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, Against you... God, and against you only have I sinned. (laughs) Lots of people involved here. Lots of actors involved. But David had come to realize that the most important actor is always, at all times, in every relationship and in every circumstance, God Almighty. And so, friends, if we are going to deal properly with the fears and anxieties that all of us are afflicted with, we are going to have to deal first with the practical atheism that afflicts each of us. I believe in God. I trust everyone here believes in God. Every poll says at least 85% of people believe in God. But when it's in this difficult circumstance with that difficult person, I forget God. And I forget that God is not just there. He is not passive but he is actively involved in the circumstances of my life. And if I can get that, if I can be reminded of that, that God is active, God is at work in the circumstance, even though I cannot see precisely how, it will help me immensely and help you in your relationships and in your circumstances. So page 15, the God of suspense reveals his plans. This week we're going to look at a couple of passages in the first part of your Bible. And they're the cornerstone of how to handle fears and anxieties. We're going to look at uh, Exodus 14, and then we're going to look at Exodus 16 as well, and the story that goes with them. Page 15 says, God does not conform to our timetable. Our timetable, of course, is that right now our silos would be filled to the brim with enough food for us and our descendants for the next five generations. We easily forget that such largesse would mean spiritual death for us. Because we would trust in our silos and have no reason to walk through life trusting our God. Proverbs 30 speaks about that danger. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, 
I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The writer of those Proverbs understands that in riches or in poverty, our hearts are still weak and deceptive, sinful. And so in my poverty, I can be tempted to steal and dishonor God. In my riches, I can be tempted to forget God. And so this idea that if I just had all that I need, the writer of this proverb, chapter 30, had the wisdom to understand that God knows what we need. And having unlimited supply without dependence upon God is most certainly not what we need. And that's one of the reasons, page 16, that he's the God of deliverance, but often God of deliverance at the 11th hour. You see, we're going to see from Exodus 14, Exodus 16, these episodes in the life of God's people, that God comes through. But God often, not always, but often chooses to come through late in the game. He chooses to come through after you've been in suspense, at the 11th hour, sometimes at 11.59 and 59 seconds. He comes through, and in the Bible, the Bible is replete with examples of God doing that, of coming through in these ways that nobody could have, could have guessed. And the question is, why does God do that? He's just up in heaven, just having a grand time, chuckling. He's entertaining himself with this. Mm-mm. The reason God is doing that is because God wants us to learn to trust Him completely at all times and in every situation. That is the reason that Almighty God so often chooses to not act when we want, but to act when He deems best. And often He deems best to act after we have had a time of distrust, after we have had a time of anxiety, after we have had a time of fear. And then God comes through again. And we say to ourselves, oh, I'm so thankful God came through. Next time I have a situation, guess what I tend to do? I forget that God came through. And he has to teach me that thing over and over again. That's why page 16 says deliverance at the 11th hour. The ways of God are better and wiser than our own. Although he doesn't choose last minute deliverance every time, he assures us that this is one of his parenting strategies with his children. The greatest gift he could give is the gift of faith in which we learn to trust him in good times and bad. And these deliverances can be wonderful opportunities. The person who's open to learn from them will be fearless and free and content. So think about it. You will trust in something or someone. That's part of being human. You'll trust in your silos, your spouse, your wealth, your loved ones, your cunning, or your health, or you will trust in the Lord. Trust in things that are untrustworthy, and you're trusting in quicksand. You're trusting in things that cannot sustain the weight of your trust. So, there's a list given there of the things that we tend to place our trust in that cannot come through, that are ultimately untrustworthy. Now try to apply those to yourself. What anxiety do you have going on right now? Financial anxiety? I'm going to be laid off from my job? I've already been laid off from my job? I can't find one? How am I going to have 
food tomorrow. I have anxiety about a relationship with my spouse, with my children. I don't know what's going to happen with my children. And I'm anxious about that. I'm concerned about the pattern, the way I see my child going. What's going to happen? Notice what all these things have in common. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm putting my energies today in what I'm concerned might happen tomorrow. And God is saying this, you trust me today. You trust me today with what I have given you this day. And you trust the only one who can see what's going to happen the next day. You can't, can you? You can think about it. You can worry about it. You have no idea what's going to happen in it. But God does. And so God says, you're going to trust in something or someone, and the someone that you need to be taught to trust because we so often, I include myself in this, every one of us, tends to forget and we get fretful because of what's happening today and I'm thinking about what could happen tomorrow when I have no earthly idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And I have at my disposal a God who knows all about tomorrow and has my best interest at heart in how he's designed it to turn out. And so toward the bottom of page 16, second to the last paragraph, travel back into biblical history. The people of Israel have been liberated from Egyptian bondage. It's one of the most important moments in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. By God's power and his power alone, they were leaving 400 years of slavery. They were leaving with their sacks full of Egyptian provisions. And then they receive a most unusual directive. God tells the people to double back toward the Egyptians. So Pharaoh is going to think they're confused and vulnerable. Smelling blood, Pharaoh pursues the trapped and defenseless Israelites. His army is in front of them, and the impassable sea is behind them. No doubt the strategy must have had Moses scratching his head. And Moses aids, questioning his sanity, and the people mad and scared. And here's what the passage says. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. And Moses answered the people, with what I told you last week is the most often given command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. <laughs> okay, we know how the story goes. Be still. Now, we're fairly comfortable with this story because we know how it turns out. God comes through, parts the sea, they go through, the Egyptians chase them, the Egyptians are all drowned, and you never see these Egyptians again. We feel good about this. Except that, in your life, with the stuff you have going on, you're the Egyptian, or you're the Israelite, with the Egyptians coming after you, with your back against the sea. Fill in the blank for whatever you've got going on. You've read about this, you know this has happened, and yet you don't think God can come through in your situation. In the way we worry, and the way we fret. Now, you're not alone. Because these very people who experienced this most powerful of miracles 
experienced vacillation shortly after that. They came into difficulties in the desert and they doubted the goodness and ability of God. And that's why God over and over again in his word has to give us repetition, has to remind us of the fact that he has not changed. And so if you look down at the bottom of page 17, Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed, the people feared the Lord, put their trust in him, and in Moses' servant for now. Nice deliverance, isn't it? Doesn't it make you wish that God would do such things now? And so one of the questions you need to ask yourself in this lesson is, is the God who was operating back then the same God who is operating now? We forget that. But the God who did that has not changed. The God who did that with those Israelites and took those Egyptians out and parted that sea is the same God who is your God. The same God to whom you cry out with what's happening in your life. And yet we forget that He has the power to do whatever He chooses to do. And to work it out, whatever it is, absolutely perfectly. For your good and for His glory. And so friends, I remind you, as I have to be reminded... That same God in the first part of your Bible is the God who is operative now in the New Testament and in your life. So page 18. You can probably remember times when you thought everything was crashing down. No way out. Yet as you look back, you can see that there was a way out. God guided you on a path through the trouble. And throughout the seven weeks of this series, I encourage you to take the time this week to answer these questions for yourself. And if you didn't get a chance to do it for last week's lesson, I encourage you to do it for that also. Describe a time in your life when you experienced God's deliverance. Are there any places in your life in which you are feeling cornered right now? I encourage you to write down a biblical reference that is not in your notes, but one with which many of you are familiar, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13, some of you know what it is. There is no temptation that is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God will provide, along with it, a way of escape, the Bible tells us. And inserted right in the middle is God is faithful. And he will provide, along with it, a way of escape. Now, no temptation that has overtaken you. You read temptation, I thought we were talking about stuff going on in my life, not sins that I'm tempted toward. Well, two comments about that. One, is worry and fear a sin? The answer is yes. Because we don't have reason to worry and fear. Do not fear. And God has given us every reason to not be anxious. And so, it can be sin for us to be fretful. Further, though, and this is the part you wouldn't get unless I told you, the word that's translated trial and temptation in your New Testament is the same word. 
And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, when it says there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, it's the same word for trial. There is no trial. There is no circumstance that's going on in your life, but such as is common to people. And God is faithful. And He will, along with that trial, that circumstance, that difficulty, provide a way of escape. He's done it with His people and recorded it for posterity and Holy Scripture. He's done it in your life time and again. He's done it in my life time and again. We need to remember that. Bottom of page 18. And so let's say you're reading a scary story or watching a scary movie. The hero is in perilous straits. That's going to pounce in the next few seconds. You want to yell, stop, don't do that, but you know it's too late. Now you're reading the same book or watching the same movie. You already know the hero doesn't die. Though you're in the same scene as before, this time you're calm. At most, you're curious as to how your hero will be delivered, but you aren't scared because you know everything will be fine. If you had been one of the people who were trapped by the Egyptian armies, you would no doubt have been overrun by fear. But once delivered, you faced a similar situation later, you might be less scared. You might simply think, I wonder how the Lord will deliver us this time. And that's the way we need to begin to think. The question is not, will the Lord deliver? The question is how. And now, instead of this becoming a fearful journey, this becomes a journey of anticipation. I've counseled many parents to try to use this approach with their children. To look at life as an, an adventure, a journey. Kids can relate to adventures. And, and that's exactly what life is for us. It's an adventure, like a safari. I'm going around this next turn, chopping down weeds today, but I don't know what awaits me. Two steps away, one turn away. It's an adventure, not knowing what happens, but knowing this, God comes through. And that's the same thing for our children. It's the same thing in our lives as as well. The question is not, will the Lord deliver? The question is simply, how will the Lord deliver? Now, let's bring it down to just regular, everyday stuff. My dear wife, who is serving with our children, I think, right now, so she's not in here. But you all know how highly I think of dear Kim. And uh, she's just a godly woman, a wonderful helpmate to me in the ministry and in our home. And uh, I never cease to be amazed at the demonstrations of her faith in things large and small. And you know that it is the demonstration of faith in the small things that prepares you to have the trust and the faith when the big things come. Do you all know that? And so every day, Kim demonstrates this. Every day. She doesn't know how she's going to get it all done. I always know how I'm going to get it all done. She's going to do it. But as a result, she doesn't know how she's going to get it done. And she takes on a lot of responsibilities with our home, of course, but with ministry, with people, talking to people and so on, as many of you do. And sometimes it just gets overwhelming. There's just more stuff to do, more appointments to have, more things to check off the list than you have energy or time. But Kim faithfully every day starts her day committing that list to the Lord God. Every day. 
And every day she has a new tale to tell about how God worked it out. At the end of the day, she says, I had no idea how I was going to get through this thing, but here's what happened. And God came through. Somebody couldn't make it to this appointment. You know, we're not praying that people don't come to the appointments, don't get me wrong. But God just moves stuff off of the schedule and things happen that you had no control over and lo and behold, it works out. And because of trust in the small things every day, you then can trust in the big things that happen sometimes. Out of the reservoir of trust that's been built up, seeing the hand of a gracious and loving God at work in the small things every day in our, in our home. And so friends, the question then for us now is not, is the Lord going to come through? It's just how. And we get up in the morning, we say, okay, what's going on? I have no earthly idea how we're going to get that done. But God knows how this is going to happen. So, instead of being fretful about it, we can be excited about it. Anticipation. That is the Lord going to come through. How is the Lord going to come through? And that's the story of your life. Second full paragraph on page 19. When you put your trust in the King, this calmness is His desire for each of us. You know the ending, and you're assured that it will be good, even better than you can imagine. And here's the choice when you face desperate situations. They can either be moments that lead you into abject terror, or they can be times when the loving Father teaches you some of the most wonderful lessons of your life. Which perspective do you choose? Even if you choose God's perspective, it won't be perfect. But over time, you'll find you turn to Him more quickly. Someday... You might even find yourself in the impossible situation and notice that you're looking forward to what your father will do. And you'll see it as an opportunity. Now what did God do with these children of his in this desert? He used the manna principle. The parting of the sea was only a warm-up. Now they're out wandering for 40 years. And one of the issues, of course, is how are we going to get food? And God teaches them to trust him with that. Do you remember the passage in which Jesus tells us not to worry? We looked at it in our first hour for those of you that were here. And there Jesus says, you have no need to worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Because God takes care of even the flowers and the birds. And they are less important to you. How much more then will he take care of, take care of you? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. When he says this to us, Jesus is thinking about the time when his father first taught that lesson. And it's the manna story. It was another 11th hour deliverance. And the children of Israel are hungry, no crops. They're in the desert. Their Their former Egyptian slavery, even with meager rations, looks better than freedom with starvation. And so they respond in classic style. They grumble and they complain. And God counters with his characteristic holy style. Because of his grace... He feeds them with manna. But the manna is more than just sustenance for their bodies. It teaches them. It teaches them to act on the grace God gives today by collecting the manna and enjoying it. Now let me stop here. Enjoy the manna that God has given you today. Do you see what worry and anxiety about tomorrow do? They steal the joy that God intends for me to have today. 
This is why Jesus said famously in the disciples' prayer, same chapter as this do not worry passage, Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, this is how you're to pray, the disciples' prayer, model prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in that model prayer from Jesus, there are six total requests. Six. I just gave you the first three. The first one is, may your name be be made holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Those three requests. Now, notice who all three of those have to do with. God. Not me. Nothing about me yet. In Jesus' model prayer, it starts out, it's got six requests, and the first three are not about me, they're about God. Why is that? Because in every situation, who is the most important actor? Always God. Then we switch to me, and in verse 11 of Matthew 6, there's the fourth of these six requests. Give us this day our daily bread. And this word for daily bread... I mean, how much is daily bread? (laughs) You know, most of us say daily bread is enough for today, tomorrow, next week, and next year. But the word daily, that word translated daily, is used one time in your New Testament, and it's there. It's not used anyplace else. So for a long time, it wasn't real clear what daily bread meant. Until about 150 years ago, when an archaeological dig discovered a grocery list from a Palestinian housewife. And the list was simply the ingredients for the stuff that she had to get for the meal for that day. And guess what the word was used there? The same one translated daily in Matthew 6.11. Just enough for today. Lord, give us enough for today. And we'll trust you tomorrow with what we need for that day. And the following day for what we need for that day. That's the lesson that God is teaching us. Trust me in the moment. Trust me now. You don't know the future. You don't know the next hour, let alone the next day, month, or year. But I do. And so when God gave them the manna, they didn't know what they were going to have the next day. But they had enough for today. And Jesus says, exalt me, seek the Lord, seek your Father and His righteousness first. His kingdom and righteousness first. Ask Him about His holy name. Ask Him about His kingdom and His will. And then say, Lord, just give me enough for today. You live that way. You can live confidently in the loving hand of your heavenly Father. So, page 20. The manna he sends is more than just physical sustenance. It teaches them. It teaches them to act on the grace of God that he gives today by collecting the manna and enjoying it. And second, it teaches them to trust him for tomorrow. Every night they go to bed with empty cupboards. And every morning they awake wondering whether the manna is going to be on the ground. And every morning it is. And after 40 years of this routine, they're probably getting the hang of it. Wake up, get dressed, take out their manna pots. And out the door, for they even checked whether the man is there. 
They're learning to trust God for tomorrow. And the message is clear. Act on the grace that God gives you today. Wait confidently for the grace that God will give you tomorrow. Now, let me add one other intriguing portion to this, at least intriguing to me. If you were to read Exodus 14 and Exodus 16, which I encourage you to do, about this whole episode of God giving the manna, it's there that God most often mentions the issue of the Sabbath and having rest on the Sabbath. So now get this. These people are out in the wilderness. They are every day just collecting enough food for the day. They're wandering. They're in an agrarian society. Anything that they have to go along with the manna, they have to, they have to plant, they have to, they have to depend on the land. If you're somebody who works trying to eke out a living, that's the way you're going to do it. And God says multiple times in that passage, I want you to observe the Sabbath. I want you to take a day off where you don't do anything. Now why do you think God's doing that? God is reminding them, now get this, it is not ultimately by your toil and your labor that the things you need are provided. It is by my hand. And the truth is, when you take one day out of seven and you do absolutely nothing, you're still going to have everything you need. And so God is going out of his way to prove that point to these folks, to make sure that they understand that they will have what they need for the day, and it comes from God's gracious hand. Even when our labor is involved, it's still ultimately his hand that provides what we need. So a good God teaches his children then, just as we try to teach our children in our homes, and he teaches his children now. So the last, or second to the last paragraph on page 20, anxiety and worry are always off in the future. They're scouts on the frontier. They run ahead and they spy on the enemy. When they return, they tell tales of bloodthirsty giants, an enemy army that extends to the rise, an insurmountable odds, sure defeat. These spies, you see, have been commissioned to always envision the worst-case scenario. Now, why is he using that? Because you remember that at one point they go to take the promised land. God told them to go in. I want to give you, deliver your enemies, but they didn't trust God. Too many spies, too big, too hard a job. Your task is to denounce these alarmist spies and instead adopt the story of the manna because it is indeed your story. Last night's manna wasn't on the ground. Last night, manna wasn't on the ground. You wake up, and there it is. It's everything you need for today. And so I encourage you to think about where in your life do you need God's manna? How could making that manna story your own change the way you live regularly? And can you think of times when you woke up expecting the ground to be bare, but he gave you just what you needed? Bottom of page 21, can you understand then why you worry when you think about tomorrow? You worry because you don't have what you need yet. If you imagine tomorrow's misery without tomorrow's manna, of course you're going to worry. That's a great phrase. Tomorrow's misery without tomorrow's manna, of course I'm going to worry. These are all the things that could happen because I don't have the provision in hand yet. You only have manna for today, and His great wisdom God doesn't give you tomorrow. Otherwise, you would forget Him Trust in yourself. And so get specific with your worries and anxieties. 
Let's say you're anxious about, and this is very real to our congregation at this moment, you're anxious about getting cancer. You've seen its effects on other people. You fear the possible disfigurement, the pain, the death. You can't imagine having grace, which is the New Testament version of manna, so that you can go through such a thing, even though you've seen God give grace to others. And you predict that tomorrow's grace is not going to be enough. The manna will no longer be on the ground, and you worry. But God promises grace when you need it. What will it look like? Those specifics are impossible to tell. But He'll give you grace to trust Him, grace to love others, and grace to have hope more than fear. Now that phrase, hope more than fear, just encourage you to underline it, circle it, something. Because the word hope in the Bible is not just, it'll be cool if something works out. That's the way we use the word hope. I hope it works out. But hope in the Bible means this. A confident expectation that God will fulfill His promises. That's what hope in the Bible is. That's why in Titus chapter 2 we're told to look forward to something called the blessed hope of the Lord's return. Because Jesus has promised, I will come again and receive you. And so this hope is a confident expectation that the Lord will fulfill His promises. And so I can have this blessed hope that He is going to return because I'm absolutely confident that He will do what He has said. And so each day, you trust Him with whatever comes, even something big like a diagnosis of cancer, because He'll give you the grace to trust Him, to love others, and to have hope more than fear. And so ask the question at the bottom of page 22. Are you worried because you don't have grace yet to deal with something that might or might not happen in the future? And figure out like what? Don't expect to be an expert immediately. The Israelites had to practice this for 40 years and they were still clumsy when it came to trusting God during difficult times. Fears and anxieties, middle of page 23, always want more information. They think that knowledge is power. In response, your Heavenly Father confides in you. What you read in His Word is no mere story. It's the revelation of the very heart of your Father. He's bringing you into His innermost thoughts. He's giving you what your fears and anxieties are asking for. He's giving you information about the future. Fears and anxieties always want more information. And so, when we're worried about what we don't know tomorrow, one of the ugly things that we're saying is, I'm not sure God will come through, and I'm not completely sure that what God says in His Word is true. And none of you want to say that, do you? I think in our heart of hearts, we, I, we don't believe that. But we often forget that. That God comes through, God is faithful, and what God has promised in His Word is always true. But fear and anxiety always wants more information. And God has given us all of the information that we need in order to trust Him in the moment. Now, in the following pages, pages 24 and following, you have additional stories of the same kind of phenomenon going on. God coming through at the 11th hour. On page 24, you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego down at the, down at the bottom. And you remember their situation that 
they had no idea how they were going to be delivered from this slavery that they had been carted off to from the Jerusalem to Babylon. And now they were told to worship the king of Babylon. They refused to do so. And now they're being thrown into prison and ultimately into a fiery furnace. You all remember that? How are you going to be delivered from that? How's God going to come through now? Here's what they say. If you look at the bottom of page 24 and the top of page 25, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Either way, we're going to be delivered. If we die right now at your hand, we will be with God. If he chooses to do that, we trust him. He has the power to deliver us from this thing, and we know the story he ultimately did. But that was the kind of faith that they went into this with. Now, notice what they would not give into, the idolatry of bowing before the Babylonian gods. Now, I'm almost done. But I said in our first hour, the thing that concerns me most about professing Christian people who fail to trust God instead of trusting in money or insurance policies, or and I've got insurance policies, I'm not saying those are bad, but that's not where my ultimate trust is. When Christian people do that, they are not exhibiting any values that are any different from the world. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we are not like the world. We don't need your gods. We don't care about your gods. There is one true and living God. He can and will do what He pleases, and what He pleases is always best. That's all we need to know. And friends, that's the kind of faith that we must learn to exhibit in all of our circumstances. So on page 26, I encourage you to answer the question, do you think that that kind of trust is possible? Don't forget, these three men did not yet have the Spirit of God indwelling them on a regular basis in the way that, that you do. And so we conclude with Psalm 56 at the bottom. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? I encourage you to do one last thing, and then we'll pray and be dismissed. You should have an insert in your in your booklet. Is there an insert that has yeah stuff on it? Okay. Just tells you some things that are coming up. I just want to call that to your attention. This coming Friday is a hayride and bonfire. All of you are encouraged to come to that. And there are maps to the location for that. In Taylor uh, is the location. The maps are over at the uh, resource table, so pick one of those up on your way out. And then there's some things in there about a newcomer's brunch on November 20th. For those of you that are new, we would love to have you at our house to have brunch on that Saturday morning, November 20th. If you'd like to participate in that, register at the uh, information table. And then November 21 is our next baptism. And any of you who have not been baptized need to mark that because that is a command that Jesus gives to all of his followers. Being baptized means you are dunked in water to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. If that has never happened with you, if you don't know what that is, then I would love to sit down and tell you about what qualifies you to do that and why it goes that way. But the next one is November 21, okay? So take a look at those and mark the ones that apply. Let's ask the Lord to help us this coming week.
Father, we thank you that we can be reminded of your dealings with your people in history. Thank you for preserving for us in the pages of your word how you have brought your people through perilous situations, often at the 11th hour, all for the purpose of teaching the most valuable lesson of all, that we need to trust the loving hand of our God every moment of every day. Lord, I have been challenged today, both in the first hour and now in this hour, about how I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and next year. But only the omniscient, sovereign God knows what's going to happen in the next minute. No one else knows. And Lord, you have taught us to to trust and to revel in the fact that the loving heart of our God keeps us in the palm of your hand, even though we don't know what's going to happen next. I am forgetful. We are forgetful. So thank you for this reminder. And Lord, we ask you this week to remind us in our daily routine over these next seven days, as we wake up each morning, help us to commit the day to you, everything in it to you, and that to stand back and watch with great expectation and anticipation how you are going to work things out according to your plan. Help us to then praise you at the end of each day. And then with great anticipation, look forward to the next. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back next Lord's Day so that we can learn further how to trust in you with all that we are and all that we do. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.